sometimes I suddenly kill people, which is I mean, quite me liberating. Too. Like, yeah. Me too. I mean, you have to, it's difficult hiding the bodies, but um, it happens to me as well sometimes. That was one of the things that Dr. Paula Morris taught me, is that you have to be absolutely ruthless. Welcome to Ears Wide Open, a podcast that is a project of The Open Book, the world's most beautiful second-hand bookshop at 201 Ponsonby Road. Tonight we have got Rachel O'Connor with us. Hello, Rachel. Hello, Anna. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Great. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. So you're going to start by reading us a little something and then we will talk. Okay. This is an extract from the tragic, funny version of The Birth of My Third Child, in a Greek hospital. We meet again, Mrs O'Connor, at the hospital, not sadly the one in the leafy suburbs, the same young Bulgarian intern that I had seen that morning, no longer fresh-faced, impressed me by recalling my name. His English was also impressive, far better than my Greek. Seven centimetres, very, very good. You are on your way upstairs. Before I could take up this promotion, however, there were formalities. In an examination room reminiscent of a third-class ferry cabin, the mundane indignities of my admission were conducted simultaneously with those of a skinny Romanian girl. She looked frightened and no older than 15. I guessed it was her first child, but the nurse completing the chart said no. The second, and I reflected briefly on how many children I might have already had if I'd started breeding at her age. Somewhere in double figures, I abandoned the exercise. Wow. So this little piece called The Lifeboat Method was one of the things that you sent me, and it really struck me. Its listeners will, regular listeners will know I've got a couple of small children of my, my own, and the birth experiences still feel relatively close. And what you described there felt quite horrifying to me. I wondered, tell us something about your time in Greece, what you were doing there and what happened to you, what you learnt. Well, I arrived in Greece on purpose. I had been living in England and a friend returning to New Zealand wanted one more trip to Greece, so we went together to Crete. But after getting off at the wrong stop from a ferry... I was forced to stay the night in a tiny village with absolutely no entertainment but a single disco where I met my husband of 30 years. Wow, did you immediately know that this would be your husband of 30 years? Uh, It probably took until the next morning, I have to be honest. Yeah, we spent the first 12 hours getting to know each other intimately, at which point I decided I wasn't leaving. And I didn't. Wow, and his... Has the rightness of that decision been clear for you for every day of the past 30 years? Um, I think that there were times when, if it had been easy to do so, I would have walked away and never come back, but I think that's true of every marriage. And it's been a wild and enriching experience. So we, um, after some months finishing the the season in Crete, travelled back together into northern Greece, which was his homeland, and... After that, left together and spent six years living in London, where he studied glass and I um, did a variety of jobs. But in the that was Thatcher's England, and in the end, it was neither his home. A kind of better place than the England we know today. (laughs) 
Well, perhaps a, a more straightforward place, but it was complicated for us. It wasn't his land or my land, and in the end we decided to return to Greece. And I became a teacher of English there, which I had qualified to do while living in London, and I fell in love with his city, with the people there, the language, the culture, the chaos, they all appealed to me. Um, and it became my home. And we eventually had three children with fairly large gaps in between and visit, revisited New Zealand on several occasions. But it wasn't till things really fell apart with capital letters that we decided that it would be better for everyone Primarily for the kids, I'll be honest, to return to New Zealand. So we did that five years ago. So I'm just fascinated by this love at first sight moment. So take me back there for a minute and tell me how old were you and what, what happened? You walked into this disco. Well, I was in my very early 20s, but of course I felt ancient. ancient. And he was behind the bar and the bar was empty and my, the friend I was with and I asked him and the DJ, who were the only other two occupants of the bar, where everybody was. And they said, well, they're down at the beach watching the moon rise. It was the full moon that evening. And I um, quite liked the view where I was sitting. So I stayed. And we talked as best we could. And he spoke German and I spoke German. And I didn't speak any Greek and he spoke almost no English. So we fell in love in the German language, which sounds highly unlikely, but that carried us well, through. Germans do it all the time, I believe. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. And that carried us through our, our first sort of few days together and then eventually we, you know, the language of love prevailed. Wow, that's amazing. And how was it watching Greece fall apart with capital letters? It was tragic on a on a personal and on a very emotional level I mean by the time it became clear to us that things were not temporary and not fixable it was kind of too late to do anything but salvage what everybody could and I'll I remember very clearly that Greeks are very sociable and very communicative people and I remember the time when I walked down through the market, the local market, and I heard everybody asking each other how they were, which people always do. And instead of the normal re response, which is, I'm fine, how are you? And then a conversation would emerge. People would say, Aslema kala, which means, let's say we are all right. And it was pervasive. You know, the, this terrible darkness just took hold of all the ordinary people. And it was a sense of hopelessness because they knew that they were powerless to make things better. And how yeah. had the texture of daily life changed? Well, I think that apart from that sort of um, very very complex um, state of, of sort of depression which seized most people, there were very basic things which our children's schools didn't have the books that they needed. They didn't have diesel to to heat the classrooms in the winter and then they didn't have teachers and there were mountains of rubbish growing on all the roads because there were either weren't collections available or there weren't drivers to drive the trucks it was just everywhere um, and it, that that's on a very very street level let's say and everybody got wage 
cuts, um, even people working in private industries had huge reductions in their earnings. People, a lot of people fell into debt for the first time in a real sense because Greece has amongst the highest rate of home ownership in Europe. So people have their family homes and their apartments, which have been bought as a kind of dowry through their families. And a lot of people started borrowing on credit cards and things like that as a kind of a stopgap measure and found themselves plunged into a measurable debt where the suicide rate has has rocketed there. Um, People have stopped having babies. Uh, Everybody who possibly can is leaving or has left. And it's very hard to feel hopeful. Yeah, Yeah, it's terrible. But there's an upside, and that is that in lots of the inner cities, the the number of galleries and artist studios has grown exponentially because when you've got no money anyway and you're unlikely to have a proper job, people have emerged with artistic and community endeavours which have brought to life a lot of the inner city areas of Athens and of the Saloniki, which is the good side Mm. of people not having anything else to commit themselves to. Mm. Yeah, I was there in 2010 and really, you know, loved it, Uh, but that's before uh, things really bit. Yeah, perhaps not very long before. No, very shortly before, really. It was certainly mounting, yeah. Yeah, but um, it hadn't kind of, you know, it hadn't really started to fall apart at that stage, I think. But Greek people have been through terrible dark times before, and I believe that as a nation they'll prevail, but they're struggling, yeah. Mm, Absolutely. Well, from the Greeks to your own writing, so you have a novel underway at present, and you've obviously written other pieces. When did you begin to think of yourself as a writer? Well, I guess that I, it sounds rather cliche, but I always have considered myself as a writer. As a child, I decided that I would be either an artist or a writer or a teacher, or a ballerina, and three out of four ain't bad. So I feel like I was writing stories. I remember winning my first prize for a poem when I was eight years old in some national sort of book competition for kids, you know. And I always assumed that I would write. And then at a dark point in my life in Europe, I remember being struck by the reality of the fact that I didn't write. And so I began writing again, just for myself. I had no prospect or or belief then that anyone else would read it. But I began to write for myself just to prove that I could. And it was part of reconstructing my faith in myself at that point. And it was probably pretty terrible what I wrote, but it was the process that was important at that stage. And the, the book that I eventually wrote as part of the Masters of Creative Writing program was a book which was several years in gestation. I thought about it a great deal before I actually put it together. And so how long ago was this when you turned back to writing? You realised you weren't doing it and you turned back to it. Well, probably about 12 years ago. And what's the path then from that realisation to doing a Masters? Well, when I returned to New Zealand with our family, I had been a teacher and a very successful 
and happy teacher for 18 years in Greece. And it came as a great shock to me to realize that my qualifications weren't recognized here and that I wouldn't be able to teach in mainstream New Zealand high schools. And somebody said to me, go back to teach a training college, which felt like rather a poke in the eye when I had been training teachers in Greece. And I thought, well, if I'm going to go back to university and clock up a debt, then I'm going to do something that I really want to do. And that was when I found the Masters of Creative Writing program and thought, okay, if I've got a deadline and I absolutely have to complete something by a certain date and I'm paying to do it, I might finally get that book done. And that's what happened. And what was the experience of doing the Masters like? What did that year give you? Well, it gave me confidence, I would say, is the first thing. It gave me a sense that I could actually do it. I was putting my money where my mouth was. Uh, It also gave me a wonderful sense of community, that there was a very powerful creative community amongst the people who were doing the course and amongst the people who were directing the course that fed me, literally, when I had the worst day of my life, which I frequently have, um, as part of my business or my family or my, you know, the personal complications that that we all face, then I would go into one of those three-hour classes and emerge myself again, only better. I, I loved every moment of it. Practically, what it gave me was a very strong sense of craft that... Writing is something that everybody can do in their head, but until you put it down on paper and take a knife to it, it doesn't turn into something that other people will necessarily enjoy reading. So I think that that was the strongest element of discipline which I gained from it. The fact that just because you've written it and because you've got a fine sense of prose, you haven't necessarily got a good piece of writing. So what do you think of as your mission as a writer? What do you want to achieve? Well, I think most people would be lying if they thought that they didn't want other people ultimately to read and enjoy it. And may I add, to pay for it. But I think that... Don't be a poet. <laughs> well, yes, that was that was actually um, part of my decision-making when it came to novels, because... New Zealanders are very, very fond of both poetry and short story writing. And there's such a wonderful wide range of it here. But I didn't feel like I could export that the way that a novel would work for me. And I think that the first book that I wrote when I came back here was very much a rite of passage for me in the sense that in my head and heart, I was still in Greece when I arrived back in New Zealand. And it probably took a good two years to move through that and start to put down physical and emotional roots in New Zealand. So I needed to write a Greek book in a sense. And where is that book now? It's being published by Kedros Publishing. Um, Kedros means Cypress Tree in in Athens. And it's in translation at the moment and is due for publication in spring of 2019. How exciting. So will it be published in Greek? Yes. And also in English or just in Greek? At this stage it's in Greek and wow. they, um, the publishers have undertaken to um, put it out there with their partners whom they have a reciprocal arrangement with texts and hopefully find somebody who will publish it in, if not in 
Greek and, I don't know, Portuguese, um, Spanish, Icelandic. I don't really care <laughs> as long as people are reading it. And can you read the Greek translation? It will take me a great deal of time. And will you do that? I think that I probably won't read the whole book because I'm such a slow reader of Greek. And one of the things that was pointed out to me at the commencement of the translation process was that Greek prose becomes immediately 20 to 25% longer when it's translated from English because of the number of articles and the construction of grammar. So that's going to be a big book. Wow. Translation's so fascinating to me. I did a, a small amount of translation once. I don't, I'm not very good at other languages, sadly. Uh, I speak a little bit of Māori and the most tiny amount of Chinese. I did a, a translation course and I worked on something that had been literally translated from Romanian into English and then I crafted it in English and worked with the Romanian author. And it was extremely interesting to me to do that on a piece of prose and also to, we were in a class and other people were working on poems and things, and to think, oh, look at that. Like at some point the work in translation takes off from the work which it was and does in fact become something different uh, because you can't, you know, language of course is a translation from ourselves to the world and then each language is, you know, you're a different person and your work is a different work. In that language, so it would be fascinating to read part of it and oh, see yes. yeah. how close or far you feel it is. Yeah, I think what I what I will do is just begin at the beginning. A and very good place to start. Yeah, perhaps pe- many writers work harder and longer on the beginnings of their novels, usually retrospectively, because you realise that if you don't write a mean 50 pages at the beginning of your novel, no publisher is going to read much further. So that's a piece that I know fairly well, and I think from that I, I will probably be able to get a sense of um, their sense of my work. It's incredibly important to feel that someone has got inside the book when they are translating it. And what will you do if they haven't? There's very little I can do. The, <laughs> the translator is uh, commissioned by the publishing house, but they search to find somebody that they trusted with this type of work. And he's a literary translation. He recently translated Slaughterhouse-Five for them. Wow. So I feel like I'm in <laughs> celebrated of company. Of course it's, you know, it's Slaughterhouse six and a half by the time it's got into Greek, right? Yes, exactly. It's plus one, yeah. But I feel like they, they embrace my work as publishers. They took it very seriously. This is the first time that they bought a new work in English. Uh, and had it translated into and Greek. And how did they find you or you find them? Well, I found them by accident because I... Wait, wait, you walked into a bar? Not on this occasion, Anna. I think um, I was entirely sober when I addressed the email and I was literally asking them whether they would consider a manuscript in English or whether they would consider a manuscript translated into Greek if it hadn't previously been published because I had an agent in the UK and came reasonably close to having the work picked up in England. And a couple of people made the comment that it felt like a Greek book. And my husband's comment was, then maybe it belongs in Greece. And so I literally approached Kedros with a question and they said, can we have a look? And I sent them the first 50 pages and they said, send the rest please and two months later said we'd actually like to publish it ourselves 
Wow, that's great. Mm. That's great. So tell me then about your next book, which is which you're working on, which is Whispering City. No. Whispering City is the one I've just completed. Oh. That's the one that's sat in, in Salonika. In, oh, okay. So you, in you the First sent World me War. extracts from an Irish book, though. Okay. Whispering City is set in Ireland and in Greece. And the reason that it evolved was oh, because I um, when I first arrived in the city of Thessaloniki, I contacted my parents, and let, which I used to do periodically when I was traveling, and let them know where I was. And my father said, did you know that your grandmother was stationed in that city in the First World War? Now, she was an Irish nurse, and much to the disgust of her um, Republican family and allies, she joined the British Army as a way of um, exercising her own freedom and intellectual um, capacities too because she was a, a brilliant woman and had very little other um, out from the community in which she was living. And I didn't know that and it transpired that I knew very little either about her history or the history of the city I was living in. So in the course of my investigations, I realised that she would have been a contemporary of my husband's grandfather and thought, oh, wouldn't it have been funny had they met? And that's where the story began. So um, a great deal of the beginning of the novel has an Irish content. Ah, I see, I see. All right, well then tell me about the novel you've written this year then. Okay, well it's have written indicates a kind of completion, which have I, been can't lay, <laughs> I can't lay claim to. But I started off writing a second novel, which was also set in Greece. And it was supposed to form a bridge between my Greek and New Zealand connections, in my head anyway, because it was set in the Second World War when, as you know, a we lot were of... There. Yes. And this, you know, with my appalling sense of geography and history, that was another thing that I hadn't realised when I arrived in Crete on that fateful holiday. And until I went in the very early morning, um, morning hours into a, a little store that was selling backgammon boards, and the guy said to me, you know, are you French? And I said, no, are you German? I said, no, I'm a New Zealander. And immediately I was welcomed with the most open arms and sat down and made coffee and told stories about his experiences. He was a very old man, his experiences of the war and his encounters with New Zealanders. Yeah. And that opened up another whole part of history. So I began a story about a woman who escapes her own life, which is uncomfortable for many reasons, in the city of Hanya at the outbreak of the invasion. Now, the invasion of Crete was by air, so it was a terrifying experience, and it was unfortunately a loss for the Allies and for the Allied troops that fought very hard to try and resist it. Uh, and it was all over very quickly. But, of course, the occupation lasted a long time afterwards. And the story is basically two people who seize the opportunity caused by the chaos of the days of the invasion to disappear. One of them is a soldier and one of them is a woman from the city. And they construct a kind of secret life in the mountains of Crete, which lasts almost until the end of the war, at which point they are faced with a decision which means they can either try and return and reconstruct lives which for nobody are the same after war 
or they can strike out and commence new lives, which will always be a kind of secret and, however, hold the power to drive them in any direction that they choose. And what do they choose? I can't tell you that, Anna. That's the end of the story. You haven't written it yet? No. (laughs) I know what it is, but I'm not telling you. And anyway, books have a way of changing as you write them. Yeah. Yeah. So how does it come to you then, the shape of a novel? So I just don't understand how it's possible to write a novel, really. It's beyond me. How, How do you... What's your process? Well, I thought at a certain point that I would be quite systematic about it. And then I realised that that imposed too many limitations, that if I mapped out a plot, I felt myself bound by that plot. And then when I departed from it, I felt a sense of resistance. So um, what I've I've done is um, I kind of create a sketch in my head of where it begins and where it will end. And then how they arrive at that final end and in what state they arrive as characters, I leave up to the processes of my constructive creativity. Sometimes I suddenly kill people, which is I mean, quite me liberating. Too. I, yeah. Me too. I mean, you have to, it's difficult hiding the bodies, but um, it happens to me as well sometimes. Um, that was one of the things that Dr. Paula Morris taught me, is that you have to be absolutely ruthless. And I'll never she forget. She certainly abides yeah. by this. <laughs> yes, she's a ruthless herself. woman. One of the things that I learnt on the the master's program was that, however beautifully constructed a passage may be, if it doesn't work, if it doesn't fit, if it doesn't drive the story and reveal what you need it to, then it doesn't necessarily belong there. And what I have is a holding pen where. If I write something and I love it and I reach the point where I know it's not working where it is, I take it and I remove it from the manuscript and place it in my holding pen where usually it withers and dies without any regret. But simply deleting it is too sudden a process. It's kind of like old clothes, you know, where you have to sort of fold them, put them in a case or in a bag for another six months and then you feel like you can say goodbye to them. Yes, I do that when I'm writing policy papers. I have a holding pen. I call mine extra. It's always called extra, and it's got stuff in it. And yeah. I never need it. Stuff that you think you will need again, but ultimately probably never do. Never yeah. do, never do. And occasionally something will form um, the seed of something new. There have been times when I've looked back through things and thought, that's good. How can I turn that upside down and inside out and make it work for me? And occasionally that can really feed something new. But I think for me the biggest challenge with writing things of novel length is time. And I've, I feel like I don't write at the right time of day, but the time of day I'd like to write is just not at my disposal. So I tend to write at night. Um, and frustratingly, I often get to that so-called sweet spot at about one o'clock in the morning when I know I've got to turn off my laptop and put my head down otherwise I'll be complete custard in the following morning but that's really really frustrating and one of helpful piece of advice that was given to me by a friend was to make bullet points if you get to that point and you can't write any longer but you've got this stuff just pouring out of your head then just 
bang it down in bullet points in a continuation down the page of your manuscript and some of it will come back to you in the morning. And if you're a poet, then you'd be done. Yes, you'd have it, which is why I think you guys are a waste of time. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're very lazy. I'm very open about that. Absolutely. Well, I don't know. The epic poets lazy. had to try harder. Yes, they did. That's right. But um, lyric poets certainly have got it easy. Oh, look, that's really interesting. I did, so uh, your Irish connection, I did have a question about the fascination of Ireland for you, and that's a family thing. Well, to, to a degree, it's a family thing. We, we joke in my family about the eighths that we are, and the general consensus is that we are five-eighths Irish, which is, hey, over half, right? So we've got Celtic blood, not a drop of Anglo-Saxon in us. And my mom is American and has a little bit of Irish and also German and French in her. So we always had this very strong sense of our Irish roots and my grandmother had come straight from Ireland and my grandfather was I think a second generation New Zealander of of Irish descent but I think that beyond that it was in common with the Irish everyone in our family drinks too much and talks too much I think that was part of our DNA but we also have a wonderful sense of a shared love of language which always came to the fore when we were together as a family and I think that may well be the Irish in us. In addition to that, I once I'd met my husband and become steeped in his culture, I f- felt there's an, an enormous affinity between the Greeks and the Irish, um, and I don't think it's just superficial. In addition to the talking, drinking and fighting, which they do constantly and very happily, I think that there's something about the fact that there, these are very rich and ancient cultures which have existed for hundreds if not thousands of years under the yokes of various occupations with very strong religious drive now which is kind of a blanket over a much deeper and older faith system and they're very intense and excitable people and I always felt there was a very strong connection there that I wanted to explore. Oh, oh, that's amazing. Well, mm. good luck with finishing your current work. Thank you. It's never the only thing I'm writing, Anna. Right. Like, to be honest, there are two current works, and I kind right. of oscillate between them. And when I can't manage either of them because I'm not quite sure what's coming next, then I write true stories about my own life, which I always think are going to be easier because I don't have to make anything up. But, you know, the construction of truth can be even harder than the construction of fiction. Yes. So I'm always writing something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, we'll look forward to something coming out in English that we can share. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rachel. Oh, it's, it's been a pleasure. pleasure. Great to talk to you. Uh, this has been Ears Wide Open, a podcast that is a project of The Open Book, the world's most beautiful secondhand bookshop at 201 Ponsonby Road. If you're in Auckland, come down and see us. Sit in the garden, drink some coffee, use the free Wi-Fi and buy a book or two books if you're not in Auckland if you look on our website you'll find the my book bag service where you can have hand-picked books sent to you in beautiful paper wrapped parcels with a wax seal at a timetable that suits you 